welcome to the Queen Trail Podcast. There are three different types of radiation, alpha, beta, and gamma. What does this technology do? It's like, well, what can you do with electricity? I just survived 30 years HIV positive. I'm certainly not going to let a little thing like a brain tumor derail me. When I got to 29 pounds, I was so tired, I just collapsed. Everything always goes back to being grounded and centered. It's a mecca for cycling, for sure. Struggle is the neutralizing force. And I said, there it is. This is the right family. I'm, I got like cold chills. It's one lone oak tree right in the middle of the trail. It's beautiful. Hey everybody, welcome back. I hope you've had a great week since the last time that we got together. I am super excited to present to you this week's In the Company of Friends talk with my dear friend, Laura Helm. We've known each other since our kids were pretty young. Sophie was probably in third or fourth grade. So um, she's in college now. So it's been quite a while that we've known each other. I split this talk up into two episodes because we meandered in and out of so many subjects. So you're going to notice a little bit of jumping around. I tried to control for that, um, but there are a couple of cuts. But we're going to cover jewelry making. Laura is the CEO and jeweler of Three Pine Hill. You can find her beautiful heirloom pieces on Etsy, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at Three Pine Hill. It's three words, no numbers. Laura is also a coding teacher. She has a degree in mathematics and computer science. She is a tech whiz. And we'll go a little bit more into that in next week's episode, but you'll hear a little bit about it here in this one. It's a very fun and relaxed conversation that we had. So please grab a cuppa and join me on this part one of two of an In the Company of Friends talk with Laura Helm. Okay, so you did the monthly boxes and you included some of your jewelry in them. Yes. So uh, I didn't realize that there were numerous people out there, of course, people that want to be influencers, that uh, order these boxes and then do reviews of them. They pull it, you know, they open it and then here, here's what's inside and oh, look at this. And so my bracelet was featured in a couple of these. So um, I created a press page for my website, but I think I took it down because I broke it. <laughs> I keep oh experimenting. Gosh. I keep experimenting with my website, then I break it and I don't go back and fix it, but Anyway, so just yeah, because you're creating your your websites from scratch, right? I mean, like I use a platform that is just kind of like click and drag the elements. And you know, that's how I create my page. I'm not actually writing code. Are you writing code for yours? Uh, I could, but I'm not. Uh, I actually use Weebly, um, which was purchased by Square, which is my credit card processor. So it actually is kind of working nice that they chose to buy that one because now I can, if I ever integrate it. Um, but they have all the commerce stuff where if I ever decide to sell through my own personal website, it's already built in there. So I do kind of go in and tweak a few things um, because I know what I'm doing. <laughs> and then, but you can kind of mess yourself up when you're doing that. So. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. That's what I use. I use Weebly too. And, you know, when we're off of this call, and we actually have some time, doesn't have to be today, I have a couple of things that I'd like to bounce off of you on there, because I am not techie at all. And I just am so envious that you're able to go on there and tweak things and make them look the way that you want. But for the most part, Weebly is like, a complete no brainer for a website. And I've used them since um, 2009, 2010, something like that. When Oh, that's, that's been a while. It's been a while. If they were around back then, I know I was using them for writing websites when I was heavily publishing. And also when I was a fitness nutrition coach, I created my website through them. And it's just always been really easy. Yeah, I um, I actually spent a lot of time researching the various offerings. And the thing I liked about the Weebly was you can kind of go in and tweak things a little bit, 
Oh, I have a big, 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 big long list of ideas. You know, they say make a calendar, think of ideas ahead of time of topics you want to cover, either for newsletters, uh, TikTok videos, you your social media stuff. And I have a lovely long list. <laughs> it's, it's a beautiful list. It really is. So someday I might use it. <laughs> you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions and long lists. <laughs> Absolutely. I do the same thing. I bought a journal. I bought a beautiful six-month journal with all of that planning. And I was going to do this. And I think I got to like maybe 12 days of planning. And then I, I was telling Sophie, you know, I wish that this worked this way. And they had this other column over here. And she's like, you're not even using it right, mom. Like, those are months. The days are over here. <laughs> Like, all right, you know what? I wasn't made to journal. That's all there is to it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I've been pretty good about keeping a gratitude journal. But uh, other than that, I don't. Yeah. Oh, that's good that you're able to do that. I've got a box with some cards and some cool pens next to it. When you walk by it, you're supposed to write something that you're grateful for. We started January 1st, whatever, whatever pops into your mind. And then on New Year's Eve, you're supposed to empty this out and everybody sits around the table and grabs a card and reads it. It's a way to celebrate the year, but we're not very consistent with that either. So I think it's super important to have those gratitude journals, especially when you've got days that are, you know, kind of tough. It's like you have to find that glitter. You have to remember the things that you're grateful for and make them tangible so that you can go, yeah, you know what, this day went to hell in a handbasket. But man, that tuna fish sandwich rocked my world or whatever it is, you know, I think it's important to have those types of things. Absolutely. You know, I think what really spurred me on to be more consistent about it was reading and I cannot remember her name. So you want to talk about race? It's a great book. You know, just talk about what it's like to be African-American in the United States. And she really does an excellent job of explaining systemic racism. And yeah, you don't think you're a racist, but she talks about recognizing your privilege and going through and really listing all the things that have been an advantage to you. You know, the fact that I lived in a town, I grew up and went to school in an excellent school system. I mean, these, this school system used to brag about how many other students went on to Harvard. So my dad happened upon a house where the guy was selling. My dad ended up buying, not buying it through a normal channels, but, you know, paying him directly. Kind of like a rent to own situation. And we ended up, our, us being there just was completely different. The expectation was you go to college, you know, living a life and these having aspirations was just part of being normal. Right. <laughs> and uh, doing achievements and going to college and all that sort of stuff besides getting a great education. So um, just back to the idea of privilege, if that hadn't happened, you know, the place we had been living before, would I have achieved the things I achieved or been able to? I don't know. You know, location, 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 right? They always say that what it affords you or um, how it disadvantages you. So um, her name is Ijoma Oluo. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that yeah. right. Um, I-J-E-O-M-A, last name O-L-U-O. I will link that in the show notes. Um, I'm going to pause for a second because I'm realizing I left the front door open and I can hear somebody using their saw out there and that will come through. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, it's funny you say that. I have an app I listen to before I go to sleep, the melodies that are supposed to be relaxing and everything. And there's this mixing section where you can pick you know, bird sounds and running water. And I think one of my favorite is the street noises, you know, just like the hum of cars. Really? And, I'm, and I realized coming from a small town, New England, I'm like, I'm so comforted by these city noises more so than I am of buzzing bees and <laughs> chirping birds. So interesting. That's funny. Well, I have found that it doesn't matter where I live, anywhere that I've ever lived, at least from, let's say, sixth grade on up, I can hear a train at night. Even when I lived in Redondo Beach, I could hear trains at night. And it was just, you know, not necessarily horns. Sound carries so far, you know, and then um, those foghorns, you know, they, 
they really, really carry far. Oh, yeah. I can hear the trains. I can hear the seals barking mm-hmm. if it's quiet enough. So, yeah, oh, train, train sounds are the other ones that I like to add to my little mixes. <laughs> That's so funny. So when you lived in New England, you didn't have a whole lot of that? Let's see. Wayland probably had about 20,000 people living there at the same time. And I actually had a dairy farm down the road. So it was suburban, but we were bordering on farm country. So we literally were only 20 minutes from Boston, though. So it was kind of a mix. But yeah, no, we didn't have a lot of traffic or helicopters or trains. (laughs) Maybe a cow once in a while, but pretty quiet. Except in spring when we had crabapple trees outside the front of the house and they would be full of bees. You could hear the whole humming from inside the house. Really? Now that is a sound that I love. We had a California pepper tree in the backyard. And when it would flower, there were bees just gathering pollen and nectar from these little teeny tiny cream colored flowers that were on there. And I would take my chair and a book and just go sit under there because I loved that droning sound. It was just like a mental massage. Absolutely. Well, now it's very popular. It's like the ASMR. They want to hear Uh people tearing the paper off the page and, you know, spilling the craft materials onto the desktop to have these wonderful sounds that are somehow soothing to the brain. Yeah, I think it's kind of funny because I, I don't want to hear them. I think... Maybe it bothers me because the sound of chewing, other people chewing bothers and clicking. I notice sometimes, you know, people out of habit will get like a ballpoint pen and they'll start (laughs) doing that with it. (laughs) And I'm like, please stop or tapping. You know, I don't like any of those sounds. It's called misophonia, M-I-S-O-P-H-O-N-I-A. And it's swallowing you know i don't want to hear people slurping no (laughs) no no i I worked with a woman who was engaged to another co-worker from a different office and one day she admitted it's like i can't stand listening to him eat i don't know if i can marry him (laughs) it was that she was that bad they did get married yeah you know i mean i think you could learn how to curtail those things. Um, And it's funny because especially if I have headphones on, you know, I will hear myself chewing and it gets on my own. (laughs) I'm getting on my own nerves when I hear that. (laughs) There's no chewing option in that app. (laughs) (laughs) Cannot take the... That's a good thing. (laughs) Exactly. Very good thing. Uh, and I keep thinking of going and getting a job working on the Voyager project because everything on that thing is still written in Fortran. Um, but nobody uses that anymore. And I probably learned, I don't know, a couple dozen languages since way back when. <laughs> so it's just something that you're, you're constantly retooling yourself. The fundamental concepts are the same. Like, And that's what I teach my kids. They need to be able to understand how a programming language works because Python's going to go away and there's going to be whatever the next thing is. That's the challenge of being in information technology is that the technology is constantly changing. Mm-hmm. And you got to know how it works. It's evolutionary. I mean, I think that it kind of resembles like when I'm having a discussion with people who are upset that people are not using particular words any longer. The language is being hijacked by new words and old words are becoming obsolete. But I think computer language, that's why it is called a language because it is kind of a living fabric and things are constantly, words or terminology is constantly replacing old terminology. And it's not necessarily better than something that's no longer preferred. It's just that it works better for the current application. And I think language is like that. It It's just always going to evolve and change. Etymology, I just love to, you know, I like words, just finding out where they came from. And, and I still use words that nobody else uses anymore, just because maybe I'm arrogant or something. I don't know. But, but then people don't know what I'm talking about. So we kind of have to have a happy medium between being able to communicate with people and having fun with words. Right. And I don't think it's arrogance. I think people who love words, those words just pop into our brains, you know, and and out they go. And I've got so many friends who will tell me, I had to look that up in the dictionary when we were done. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't, I don't for a second think like I need to talk at this elevated level. I just do. And words are fun. It's fun to 
replace common words with something that's uncommon. And it just causes listeners to pay attention at that moment because you want to emphasize something. So you pull in a different word that hasn't been used for a while. You know, it's funny. I find that, oh, Twitter and it's 240 characters. It's ruining the English language. But I have to tell you, in order to convey what I want to convey in that many characters, I spend an awful lot of time going, okay, what's a synonym for educate or something like that. And I feel like it's expanded my writing skills, at least in terms of being succinct. No, it's true. I constantly am looking for synonyms for words, especially if it seems like I'm using a word over and over. I'm just being redundant with it. I'm like, you know, what? I really need to use a different word. And so I will look them up. Do you have a favorite thesaurus online that you use? I don't. I usually just put, you know, synonym for whatever in my browser and whatever comes up. And sometimes if it doesn't give me what I want right away, I'll dig in. But usually it's like Webster comes up and then there's a thesaurus.com. But yeah, no, there's not one that I particularly use. I tend to gravitate to, in fact, I got it saved as a favorite is Word Hippo. Oh, yeah. That has been popping up a lot lately. Yeah, they have the most complete thesaurus online that I've seen so far. I mean, I haven't done a dedicated search or anything like that. But I noticed that it expands greatly from any of the other thesauruses. So, you know, you might get like 10 common words on the top five thesauruses that that will pop up on your search. But they'll have like 50 words that are good choices. And then I'll go, Oh, I forgot about that word. That's such a great word. Let me use that. (laughs) I'll have to ask you though. My other common thing is, is, well, you know, what's a word for instead of saying, well, using three or four words to describe what you want. It's like, there should be a word for that. Mm -hmm. So I, that's the resource that I need is to be able to go and say, is there a word for just like the person that does this all the time or. Right. There are words for everything. I think word hippo does that. It doesn't always do that, but it does have some additional capabilities. But I think that things like that, where what is a single word for these 15 words that mean, like, can I have one word that I can use? There's all of these quorums online, too, where people will throw things out on there. And sometimes they'll like, nail it, you know, it's like, Oh, that's right. The cool thing about that to me is that you realize that there's so many amazing words out there. Our language is so rich and just infinitely able to define exactly what you're trying to say. We'll never have all of those words in our heads. Like we'll never know them all. But if you just do that little search, it'll come up and you know, you'll realize, oh, yeah, I heard this like 15 years ago. And I totally forgot that that's what that person is called, you know, Um, just like common stuff that you see, you know, like, like, there's a tequila that's called El Jimador, or I don't know how you would say it in English, because I always apply the Spanish accent to it. But I think Jimador tequila, well, a Jimador is the name of the person who cuts the agaves into these pineapples, you know, they, they take all of those sharp serrated leaves off and they turn it into a pineapple and then they cut that and take it over to the processing plant. And that person who takes care of the agaves and harvests them is called a jimador. And that's where that name came from. It's not always a specifically English language word because that's more, you know, specific to Mexico. And that's where that word came from. But you go, Oh, okay, I get it. You know, that's, that's pretty cool. And clearly, I know a little too much about tequila. (laughs) (laughs) I was gonna say it's margarita time, if you ask me. It's margarita time. Actually, I wrote a story about a Mexican boy whose grandfather owned a plantation, a a tequila plantation in Mexico. So I did a lot of research on how you make tequila, where it comes from. It was a lot of research and it was really fun and interesting. Good history. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and you talk about that word being specific. I mean, 
there's some language, you know, what is it? Eskimos have 17 words for snow or whatever. Mm. Um, how different languages don't have words for some things and have words that mean things that we don't have equivalencies in, in English. Exactly. Um, so it's always pretty fascinating to find those things and hope they don't disappear. Yeah. And because I also speak Spanish, I don't speak it nearly to I mean, I probably speak 95% English and 5% Spanish. So it's a little sad, I forget my words. But that was my first language growing up. And sometimes my brain, because these words are in there, it doesn't distinguish between English and Spanish. And for some reason, uh, words like see, I'm having trouble thinking of it, magnifying glass, you know, every time you go for a search to search on anything, there's a little magnifying glass and everybody's like, just hit the little magnifying glass. And I pause to think of that word because my brain immediately says lupa. And that's what it's called in Spanish. And I don't know if it's because it's just so easy to say lupa or because it looks in my brain, something about a magnifying glass looks like it should be called a lupa instead of a magnifying glass. <laughs> But things like that will happen. You know, the Spanish word pops out and it fits so much better than the English word. Well, it's interesting. I think it has to, a lot to do with, you know, you're learning these languages when your brain is forming. Now, I took six years of Spanish, middle school through high school. And right now I'm trying to teach myself French. Oh, très bien. Uh, my first thought is I start forming the sentence in Spanish instead of French. And they're not that similar. They guess they're both romance languages, but they're very different. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I feel like I can maybe put a couple of Spanish sentences together. I just surprises me every time I'm doing my little Duolingo lessons that I, my first thought is Spanish instead of French. <laughs> and I, and I grew up with a little bit of French in the household because my dad was pretty fluent. Yeah. I'm, I'm a Cadian French Canadian. So my, my grandparents came down from Canada and so I had a lot of French speaking people in my youth around me, not French, France, French. French Canadian French, which apparently is frowned upon in some places. <laughs> really? Every single language has a dialect, right? So there's something yeah, a little yes. bit different. Right. And it's it probably splits up in Canada as well. Like you're gonna have a different type of dialect on the north side than you would over on the south side and Or as they say in Pittsburgh, South Side. <laughs> Go down to the South Side and get some beers in that. <laughs> My, my husband's from the Berg and I'm from Boston. And it's so funny when we call home and listen to family members that still have accents, all of a sudden we start talking to each other with that. I know when he's talked to his mom is all of a sudden he's, his Pittsburgh geese comes out. Like, did you talk to your mom? Were you just talking to her? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You get sensitized to the accent. I had a friend who moved to Maine. One <laughs> of my very, very, very best friends when I was, in middle school, she was like a sister to me. And I just remember bawling our eyes out that we were probably never going to see each other. We called each other every day. And eventually, of course, you know, the time between calls started to widen. And I just remember one day she called me up and she's like, hi, Sylvia. And I'm like, who is this? And it was, it's me, Patty, you know, she just had this, <laughs> you know, this drawl, this, uh, she had the accent from that area. And our calls started picking up again. And my mom would tell me, you know, when you talk to Patty, you sound like you're from Maine. And I said, really, which I thought was really funny that I was picking up her accent, just talking, just talking <laughs> yeah. to her. Oh, you can't get air from here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it was. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go up and get some lab stuff. Uh, I'll never forget one time, two co-workers and their moms happened to be visiting at the same time. So while they were waiting for these ladies to get off work, the moms were sitting in the break room talking to each other, one from England and one from Georgia. <laughs> After about five minutes, they're like, I have no idea what you're saying. Like they were both speaking English, but they literally, they were so heavily immersed in their own dialect that they had a really hard time talking to each other. It was kind of interesting. I had that difficulty in understanding what people were saying. It was all English, but it was so heavily accented was Gosford Park. I don't know if you watch that film, but there are English, Irish, Welsh, Scottish, and 
you know, I mean, all they needed was to throw an Australian in there. And I need subtitles <laughs> because, you know, you start to get one accent and then here comes somebody answering in a different accent and it's very thick and cockneyed. And you're just going, what did he just say? I don't understand oh, it. I, I, my husband and I love Dairy Girls. We do have to put on the subtitles so we can tell what they're saying. That is funny. Um, I definitely wanted to also talk about your jewelry making. I mean, <laughs> I'm so fascinated by that because it's very intricate. It's really beautiful. It's super precise. And I see so much of your mathematical and engineering knowledge. Your environmental interests are also being brought together in the jewelry. And there's such unique and beautiful pieces that I wanted to talk about how you got into that and just the whole process that you go through to create some of these. Well, you know, both my parents were creative um, and my father would buy old instruments like 10 bucks for an old banjo and he would repair it like redo all the inlays. I like would have especially banjos, which he never played, which is funny because he played guitar, he played fiddles, he was a very accomplished musician. Yeah, so... <laughs> maybe it's good. I like to kind of gather all of my thoughts about stuff. Uh, maybe it's just me. <laughs> I think that's an excellent trait. You know, I think that the older I get, the more I realize that I don't have to have knee jerk reactions to everything that I don't need to respond immediately to every text and every email that comes my way. I can stop and think about it again to economize on one redundancy and two responses that either make things worse or are just plain old non-productive. So, you know, it's okay to think things through. Well, a very interesting book, if you have not read it yet, and I know you're probably a little bit more social than I am. I'm kind of like to live under a rock, but um, it's um, <laughs> Susan Kane, and the book is called Quiet. And I think the subtitle is Introverts, living in a world that won't shut up or something like that. But I read it maybe five years ago. It was eye-opening for me. And they really talk about people that are extroverts and how they tend to think faster on their feet, but they also don't, they never get to a depth, you know? And, and again, that's a generalization. Everybody's different. I really admire people that can think on their feet, think well on their feet. So people can come Absolutely. out with a, right? So they have not only have the intelligence to have a good response, but also to be able to come up with it. Uh, you know, you know, the whole old thing is, uh, I thought of the good punchline or return, you know, two days later. <laughs> yeah. right, so, um, right. But it really talked a lot about how society is so engaged with the people that you know, can do the song and dance, that we really minimize the contributions of the Einsteins of the world, right? So, um, but she quantified it in a very nice way. And it was really an enjoyable read. It also allowed me to appreciate the things about me, my mulling or my taking the time to really understand something has benefited me as well as people around me, you know, just don't have me do stand up <laughs> or improv. Yeah, I think that we all need to be validated in our response styles, who we are, you know, those are all things of who we are. Because a lot of times, I think, I wish I could have thought of that. This is one of the reasons why I love talking to people. Everybody has a different perspective. And so many times I'll say, oh, blah, 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 because, you know, it's totally obvious to me. And then the person I'm talking to throws in something that's so brilliant. And I didn't see that. I did not see that. It's like, whoa, you know, like, yeah, well, you know, if you turn it this way, see where the light's glinting off? That's, I'm like, whoa, I wasn't looking at the dark side of the object. I was looking at the lit side of it. And now that you've turned it around, that is amazing. And so I love that, that, you know, your perspective can be widened through these various communication styles. But, you know, it's the same thing with me, where I wish that my ability to be extemporaneous on so many conversations was quicker, was, you know, just like on the cutting edge. But on the flip side, you take a look at 
some of the people who are just quickly responding to things. And like you said, they are either just on the surface sometimes, or there's a lot of error in that, or there's a lot of presumption in it that doesn't take into account other things. So um, I think we balance each other out. I think that the, the fast thinkers and the slower thinkers, and that has absolutely nothing to do with intelligence quotients or emotional intelligence or anything like that. It just has to do with processing speed and what each person is individually comfortable with. Because, you know, somebody who's producing answers really fast might not be seeing the whole picture and somebody who's processing things a little bit more fully, more extensively, um, really delving deeper is going to, to eventually see a bigger picture and somewhere in the middle, there's a balance. And I think that, you know, there's definitely space for both of those. Well, and the perfect example of that was back in my consulting days. Occasionally I would go out with the salespeople and of course the salespeople are the, the slick talkers, <laughs> uh, right? And they would bring, you know, the tech guy along with them. And I was always the tech guy. And they'd be, oh, yeah, we could do this, blah, blah, blah. And of course, the sales guys, like, they would be the dreamers, right? Like, oh, yeah, we could do this, we could do that, and blah, 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 blah. And I, well, I'm sitting in the corner going, no, 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 you can't do that. That's going to cost you. You're going to need 70 programmers and whatever. And the reason we were teamed up was because we wanted that balance. But you have to know that you need, you have to know that the balance is needed because I think there's certain things that are happening in politics lately where the fast talkers don't necessarily have the best solutions, but they're the ones getting the ear of the people and there's not that balance, you know, so. Right. The slower ones are already passed up in the race, you know, like they find themselves finally reaching the finish line and the race is done. Like everybody's off on to the next one and the cameras have moved on with them. Right. The people that need to hear the messaging of both are only listening to the louder one. You know, yeah. because they, you know, they want to get to dinner, they want to go get, they got to get to work, or they got to, oh, they sometimes to get the entertainment, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like they don't exactly, want exactly. It's like, where's the popcorn? Uh, yeah. And, and sometimes that's good, but then, like with climate change, it takes too long to sit and conceptualize broader subjects, you know? So, and the concepts are so complex too, because it, everything's interrelated. And, you know, you start talking about one thing. It's like a conversation. You start talking about one thing and that leads to the next thing and that leads to something. And before you're looking at it, you're like, okay, well, how do I fix this? <laughs> and we still haven't talked about math and my jewelry yet because we went down a whole other... <laughs> We went down a hole and before we get there, I used to work in automotive for a very That's short right. time. My contract didn't get renewed for education because I don't think most people know this, but a, a lot of education staff is only guaranteed their jobs for that one year. And then they get a notice of reasonable assurance that they'll have a job the following year. I did get that notice. And I didn't find out until that first day of school that I did not have a job. So one of my friend's husbands had something available at the automotive place that he worked at. I was there for about 18 months. It was really eye-opening. I learned so much. I mean, I'm for a really long time been a, you know, heels and skirt and cute clothes type of girl. And that's how I would show up. <laughs> And I didn't know anything about cars. And I remember one day I just got tired of people asking me and expecting, you know, they're calling an automotive place. So they're expecting the person who's answering the phone to have the right answers and know what they're talking about. So I went down there and I said, show me how to do an oil change. And they're like, in that, I'm like, yep, just show me how to do an oil change. I want to know. I don't even know what a filter is. They showed me a filter. I'm like, that's what it looks like. You know, <laughs> it was just, it was really funny. But eventually I knew what a TPMS is, what the computer buses in these automobiles were that, you know, you couldn't just replace a radio because if you tried to replace the factory radio, chances were your horn wasn't going to work anymore afterwards and that they changed these configurations around every couple of years because they just want you to use their parts. And so, you know, you're taking your warranty into your own hands every time that you do anything on your car, yeah. unfortunately. Um, but <laughs> the salespeople started 
really relying super heavily on me because I would produce results. And so there was this one day I get this due bill at my desk and the due bills were, they want to change out the leather seats. So they don't like the white leather. They want to have black leather with white striping on it. I would set that up or they would like to have a rear view camera added to the car. This due bill said convert vehicle into a hand driven vehicle. So sure, sure. <laughs> I'm looking at this due bill and I called the sales guy in and I'm like, you cannot just go from foot brakes to hand brakes without literally gutting this entire system. You needed to send this gentleman who was a paraplegic from the waist down right, to a dealership that specializes in cars paraplegics can drive. And we had a really big argument over that. And I finally, you know, shoved the due bill at him. And I said, you figure it out. I'm not signing my name to anything that might get somebody killed. So there is stuff like that. And I don't exactly know why that story popped into my head. (laughs) But it was something that we were just talking about. And I will never forget having this due bill in front of me and just my brain just freaking exploded. It was like, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, you know that I was telling you about how we had the tech guy and the sales guy go together. And of course, I would go back and in producing the bid, I would go through, well, this will probably take about 60 programming hours, you're going to need to buy this equipment, it's going to cost them this and that, and we'll have to get this software and blah, blah, blah. And I would put this all together. And I, it's a $50,000 project, let's just say, <laughs> which is a pretty small number mm-hmm. for a software development project. But uh, and then they, of course, they'd hack it. They go, oh, no, 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 we want a competitive bid. So we, okay, 45, right? So in the long run, oh, no, you don't need that many programming hours. Time after time, they did not learn how spot on my estimates were. (laughs) Yeah. And then, you know, when all is said and done, we win the contract. And then, oh, oops, we went over by exactly $5,000. I told you it was going to cost us. It's kind of like when you look at your navigation system, you're going somewhere and it says, estimated arrival time for 12. And I'll be like, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm going to get there at least 15 minutes ahead of that. So you know, it won't even be four o'clock when I get there. And every single time I am there, no matter what I do, I get there at the time that Waze told me and you know, I could just see the voice told you so. <laughs> And that's what happens with these contracts. Everybody's trying to beat it. You know, I I really don't know any driver who has told me, oh, no, you know, like, I don't think that most people, especially here in LA, we're just trying to get everywhere as quickly as possible. Despite the amount of traffic, we think that we can do it better. And every single time the navigation system is right, every single time the consultant is right. It's oh, you you will arrive by 630. I'm like, challenge accepted. Right? Yeah. (laughs) And I think that that's what these salespeople are thinking, you know, oh, it's going to cost this much. So really, the trick is to pad that figure and say, you know what, this is going to cost $70,000. So you over deliver, but then everybody's going to be like, told you so. Yeah. Yeah. Laura doesn't know what she's talking about. See, we we saved the twenty thousand dollars. Well, I don't know. There's there's no happy medium. No, I used to go into my boss and I go, "This is my estimate. Tell the sales guy this." (laughs) So I would do that, you know, because my pride wouldn't let me go. I'll be wrong, but I'm like, I'm going to tell you it's going to cost this, but you tell the sales guy it's going to cost this. Because they're going to undercut me and no matter what I do. So that's job security. Ensure that your boss knows you know what you're talking about. <laughs> that's funny. Okay, so let's get to the mathematics and the engineering and the environmentalism of your jewelry. Okay, well, um, so I was talking my parents are always very creative. My mom was always trying to get us to draw and do that. You know, my dad was more of a maker. My mom was more of an artist. So I always just lived in that environment. Um, When I got into high school, I actually took metal shop, which was an interesting experience because I was the only girl there. In middle school, this is, again, my, my husband says, you went to college for middle school. Everybody took home ec, sewing, art, shop. We had a plastics shop in my middle school. 
Like we learned how to, really? do, yeah, we used to learn how to do like um, just plastic molding and stuff like that and how to work with polystyrene styrofoam, right? Like we made our own little styrofoam footballs and stuff like that. So, and that was middle school. Cool. That was in middle school. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when I got into high school, my sister had taken metal shop and again, my dad was always into woodworking and we had tools around the house. So I, you know, shaking shop was, you know, I really kind of went for wood shop because that's what I knew. But then when I got in there and I started using welders and stuff like that, I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> the, the first day as Mr. Frone, the metal shop teacher was taking us around he would show us the spot welder and the acetylene torch and all these different things. And he would go, would you like to try it? And I'm like, sure, no problem. So we even had a little furnace, you know, like a little blacksmith's furnace where you could heat the metal and then hammer it and do the hardening and the tempering and all that other stuff. And I loved it. I do have to say when he tried to get me to use the arc welder, I was like, no, that's all right. You have someone else try that. <laughs> that's kind of scary. Did you ever try it? No, but you know what? There's a gentleman down at Angel's Gate who's offering classes. So I might finally try the arc welder. Oh, nice. But I have to find a time when, when he's got a class that I'm available. So anyway, um, so I just, I love working with metal. Metals, uh, you know, I, I love rocks. I love metals. I love minerals because they're, cause they're unique structures and how they have these unique properties. Conductivity and copper and why you use gold here and all these different things. So I, all of that science stuff is very, very interesting. So um, I'm starting to add more of that sort of thing, metalworking to my process. It's just, you have to have the right tools. You have to have the right space. I don't want to set my house on fire. <laughs> That's important. It has been a slow, so I always loved that stuff. Oh, there's this guy on TikTok that makes these, he's this blacksmith and he's making these Valhalla doors that are like these giant arched wooden doors with these big giant steel bolts or iron bolts that close on them. But they're, they're just like a movie set, but they're ginormous, but you can't even buy his. I mean, if you wanted to order something from him, he's like booked till he's dead. Right. Like he has, that's how many, that's how many commissions he has. It's like the only way you can the only way you could get something is like he'll make these little things and then he'll auction them off. So you might be able to get a piece of his work with a raffle. Anyway, so I've always loved working with metal, but I, you know, yes, I would make earrings, do little wire stuff, whatever. My whole life, I would do maybe you know, just craft. But when I took a class in chainmail, I got to experience those beautiful things about metal without having to have expensive tools setting fire to my house and developing a product that what I considered sellable to other people. Like, yeah, my little wire wrap earrings, you know, whatever that I made years ago. No, I couldn't start a business with this. But once I discovered the chain mail and the different patterns, and again, it's very mathematical because the patterns require the rings to be of a certain shape and size in order to hold their shape. So if you don't use the right ring sizes, you won't get those cool Byzantine patterns. Yeah, so a lot of this stuff is in the public domain. These are chainmail patterns that have been used for centuries. Um, so it's not like there are some people still developing different patterns and techniques that, you know, you have to buy their tutorials and stuff to use, but a lot of it's in the public sphere. So it was really awesome to be able to, again, be working with metals in a way that I felt was creating something professional. So, so, so that was really awesome. When I first started my business, I was doing mostly chain mail. And now I'm just using it as another technique and doing that with a little bit more of the metal smithing and wire wrapping and beadwork. But it was really the thing that launched me, taking that one class, launched me into thinking I could make a business out of it. Yeah, I love metal. <laughs> and I'm fortunate enough to own two of your pieces. I have the whale tail mm -hmm. necklace that you made way early on. I think you were just starting to really get into the chain mail and the, the weaving of the different metals. And it's spectacular. And I know some of the proceeds of that, I think it was your sand and sea collection, went to the Cabrillo Marine Aquarium which I love that you give back a lot of your projects, give back to the community and the causes that are closest to your heart, you know, that's so important to you. And then I had this really beautiful metal heart. I don't even know where I got it. Yeah. 
Right. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Had, I was like, I couldn't remember what the other piece was. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't. Um, I don't know what it, exactly what it is, but it's got kind of a tribal pattern on there. And I just wanted one pearl on it. And I had had this heart for ages, and I never could find the necklace that would do it justice. You know, they were all either very thin, you can't use a flat serpentine with this heart, you know, there was just, it needed something very unique. And that's what you did for me. And I love both of those pieces. And then I have some of your radial earrings. They have the round bead that looks kind of like a daisy. I think those are the three pieces that I have. I might have something else. kind of want to say I have something else, but I'd have to go to my jewelry box and look. Yeah, you know, I think I still have a, you had brought a couple of different pearls and I think I still have them and I feel really guilty about that. (laughs) Oh my God. Now you should totally do something with them. Yeah, it's such a beautiful pearl that I have not, I don't feel like I'm up to the task. Oh my gosh. Well, doing something with it. We'll, you know, find something that you can do with it. But, you know, if if anybody listening has never commissioned a piece, whether it's jewelry or something else, it just really speaks to you. Like, you know, I need something super unique. And you find somebody who can do something super awesome with it. I highly recommend it. I've done that a couple of times with different projects. But this heart specifically that I had Laura design a necklace for it. I I think we had been talking about it and you said something about a pearl. And I was like, you know what? I would totally love a pearl because you have the artistic eye. And that sent me on a mission through the jewelry district in downtown Los Angeles. Walked around, found a place where they had these beautiful pearls and picked up a couple of them. I think we had been talking, you know, like one pearl, two pearls, and then you ended up with the one pearl on there. And it was just perfect. I think that second pearl would have definitely gilded the lily. And it's one of my absolute favorite pieces. I just, I love it. I love it. It goes with so many things. And that necklace really shows it off. And I get so many compliments on it. I did not get compliments on it before because the contrast between a thinner chain or the wrong chain on there just didn't do it the justice. And now it's actually like a statement piece. Yeah, definitely have to have the balance. Well, I have to tell you, working with people in that capacity is super stressful. Because <laughs> oh, you no. don't you don't want to wreck something for somebody. But you know, when I do shows and stuff, I make all my chains long so that when people come in, I can shorten it to the length that they need it to be. I've even started a sort of a mix in uh, a la carte jewelry section to my offerings when I do shows. Because a lot of times like, oh, I really love this pendant. I wish it was on that chain. I'm like, got my tools, you know, and, and having people walk away with something they feel like they've had that were part of the creative process is you know, I love it when people love what I make, but I love working with someone that we come up with something together and it becomes part of their collection and something that they'll wear. You know, it's just, oh, I like this. And then, oh, they might not wear it. They might. But this is like, oh, now this is their thing. They walk away with, not just, it's not just my thing anymore. It's their thing and it's our thing. I actually had the opportunity, a gentleman had, um, I'm almost crying thinking about this. He had his father's dog tag. His dad had passed away and he was, had been very close to his dad and he had someone he could commissioned a leather worker to make a band for it. So he saw me at a show and he's like, he saw my chains and I actually have a lot of male clients because some of my stainless steel pieces are very masculine. But he was like, Oh, could you do this? And so we'd work together and he said, well, I kind of like the copper because we were looking at some stainless steel pieces. So he gave me the dog tags. And of course, just having those in my possession was like, like I knew where they were at all times. Like this piece of someone else's art was in my house. I was now responsible for it. And if I had lost it, <laughs> oh my God. I would have died. But anyway, and just making sure that the final piece was what he wanted. And so we messaged him back and forth a couple of times, but it was so funny. He's like, this is a present for myself. Stop sending pictures. <laughs> So just, just do what you want, you know? So he had some input and I had some input, but then at some point we got to the point where he's like, don't send any more pictures. This is a gift from my wife's gift to me for Christmas. So he didn't want to see the final product until Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, it was really, it just was, you know, I'm talking to you about it now and I'll tell, probably tell this story another dozen times. It's a, something that's in my history now of doing all this that makes me feel really good. And he loved it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, he was really happy and he ended up coming back and having it shortened, you know, and again, I'll, anybody can come back and have me adjust anything, you know, I'm happy to do it. Right. But that's been a part of my process. And these are like legacy pieces, really, that you're creating. I actually said that to somebody the other day, I want my stuff to be heirloom. Mm-hmm. I want my metals to be solid. I want the links and to be strong. And so that this doesn't just break and end up in somebody's jewelry box and get tossed at the, you know, like this is something you want to give to your kids. Right. And it is that quality. I mean, they they are so sturdy and just special. You know, I could go into my jewelry box and I like this piece because of this reason. I like this other piece because of that reason. But you come across a piece that somebody's made specifically for you, there is a really special connection to that because you helped create it as well. And it was this collaborative union of ideas and thoughts, just particularly special and beautiful to be able to wear something like that. And I think a lot of people too, women especially, have these pieces, these pendants or something that belonged to their mother or their grandmother that's been passed down and you just keep setting it aside. You just keep going, you know, one of these days I'll do something with that. One of these days I'll turn that into something meaningful. I think that people think it's going to be prohibitively expensive. And I found it to not be that. I think it's a very, very fair price. And it's something that's going to last forever. It's so doable. I think that for some reason, we don't give ourselves permission to do special things like that for ourselves. And when you start giving yourself permission to do that, it really enriches your life in such a great way. And so, you know, every time you're wearing one of those heirloom pieces, one of those legacy pieces, there's a special connection there. And they're not just like, a collectible. They're actually pieces of art. I mean, they're truly beautiful. And they're for the everyday as well as a special occasion, I think, you know, they're interchangeably work with everything. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, we talk about the affordability, because that, uh, that was something I was going to bring up is, you know, I just bought myself a limited edition Roger Dean. Hmm. And I spent a lot of money on it. And it isn't even a full it's mostly a print um, with his signature on it and oh my god I would give my soul to actually own a, an original painting of his because I just love him so much but wow. he does this really cool thing where and it's kind of what I do where he just like paints a little like something on a print so it's an extremely high quality print and the print itself is worth limited edition blah 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 but he'll put something on it to make it a one of a kind but it allows him to sell it at a much lower price point than a, an original piece and so I think the, the way that I work with the materials that I work with and the way that I work is, you know, making it accessible to people because it's not the Valhalla doors that that blacksmith is making. <laughs> Where it's going to take two years of his life to make, you know? Exactly. I really try. I, I like that part, too, is that people can walk away with feeling like they do have a one-of-a-kind piece of art without having broken the bank. Right. And that's absolutely true. And you do make collections for different organizations, or is it just the Cabrillo Marine Aquarium so far? Um. Well, right now, so anything in my Earth and Sea collection, 5% goes to their education program. The other thing I have going, uh, it's a new collection that I call Wing Beats. So my sister passed away before COVID, and she was also a crafter, and um, she used to do poison A, but she had lots of lost art. Absolutely. And she, you know, would make jewelry. So I now have her collection of materials. She battled cancer for eight years. And I think one of the things that she struggled with the most was medicine just doesn't have an answer for the psychological aspects of fighting cancer. You know, like just everything from nutrition to keeping your spirits and all this other stuff. So there's organizations out there that help people with the non-medical part of dealing with cancer. So 50% of anything that I make with her material, stuff that I inherited. So I'm making stuff out of her stuff. And it, what's really interesting is she has a different color palette than I do. Um, I try to make things, a broad selection of things in terms of colors and metals and stuff for a broad audience. But you know, she was making mostly for herself. So I could see her color palette. She loved hummingbirds. Oh my God, she used to have thousands. She would hang in the feeders and, and she loved dragonflies and butterflies. And so it's that's why it's called the Wing Beats Collection. Oh, I love that. Anything that I make with her materials, I give 50% to this charity that kind of helps people 
with more the psychological aspects of chemotherapy. And the doctor just says, well, you're going to feel sick to your stomach. Mm-hmm. And you know, what, what happens when I feel depressed about being sick to my stomach? Here, take a pill. Right. You know, not to say that, oh my God, her doc, she had the best care. It's good that these organizations are there because I think that there are organizations out there. It's just I wish that there was more networking that occurred between them because it's something that cancer patients really need. I'm very sorry about your sister. Um, I know she was a really big integral part of your life. And that's so awesome that you're able to use her supplies and create things that I'm sure that she would just love this and it's meaningful. I think a lot of people, almost everybody knows somebody who unfortunately has been taken by cancer and One of my friends, Annie, she had a brain cancer and it petrified her. And so we would talk about it, but I don't think that she ever went to, you know, like a group therapy thing. So it's really nice that there are organizations like the one that you're giving 50% of the proceeds to kind of trying to tackle that mental care, that emotional care. Absolutely. And, you know, the more specialized doctors get, I think the less capable they are of um, handling different parts of the treatment, which includes your mental well-being. You know, they talk about that all the time, you know, Mm -hmm. why prayer is useful for some people, because it gives them uh, an emotional, psychological boost to help fight another day, you know? Right. And, you know, interestingly, prayer and meditation and mindfulness all activate the same part of the brain. Oh, I totally, I totally believe that. Which is why I make both meditation beads and rosaries. <laughs> yes, your rosaries are really beautiful. And I love that, that you, there's kind of a complete wellness quality and longevity about your jewelry making, you know, like there's an awareness, there's a deep awareness in the jewelry, which is kind of a weird thing to say of, you know, what makes people thrive and things that are going to bring healing, you know, whether it's, you know, healing and it's going to make you smile today or healing and, you know, here's the prayer beads or here's the rosary. It's a philosophy. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and I find that if you follow the crafting world and the maker's world, a lot of people will say that, you know, it's handmade with love. Yeah, I like that. There's a little piece of the artist in every piece that goes out the door, you know, whether you're making jewelry or you're knitting a quilt or anything. Um, and all of my, you know, I'm part of the Torrance Craftsman's Guild. We've got a hundred makers there from people that make signs, you know, fancy decorative signs to uh, cat toys to <laughs> like this little <laughs> she, gr- she grows her own uh, catnip to make these kitty kickers, as she calls them. Oh she also makes gosh. little cat beds and uh, little scratching posts and stuff like that. But, you know, when I... Cats are important. So, oh, actually, I'll hook you up because my cats love the kitty kickers. <laughs> oh, how cool. Yes, I definitely need to know about that because I have two cats who have not forgotten that they were once very highly worshipped <laughs> <laughs> by humankind. Uh, yes, yes. I think when you do buy handmade and you buy or something that, you know, people use their hands to make is that they're going to imbue it with a little bit of their love and joy. I only do 100% handmade shows because when you do shows that allow non-handmade, there's plenty of beautiful, wonderful vendors. Um, but then you have people and then all oh, their stuff's only five bucks. And not that it's not attractive, but it's mass produced. So I don't like to be put in the position to be compared with that stuff and not to diminish it. And I think that there's a distinction too between that fast fashion, the the mass produced fashion and artistry. Math is such elegant concepts. And even if we don't understand how to get there, we can see the beauty of it as, you know, non-mathematicians. And I think it just transcends, it just draws you to it because that intricacy, that wonder, that curiosity of how is this created, like this kind of perfection and that depth of thought. It's just mentally appealing, you know, it you know, legitimately becomes a piece of art. I was, my, my brain just started getting creative for a second there. I was like, oh, that makes me think of something. 
maybe you'll have the Queen Trail piece that comes out of this. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's well, the thing I love about mathematics in general is it's the purity of it, the, the surety mm-hmm. of it. One plus two is three. That's it. Language is so messy. People are so messy. Medicine is messy. You know, physics and math, that's messy. <laughs> it's an affable. Yeah, oh, good word. I'm going to put that in my list of Twitter words to use. <laughs> in fact, I might just tweet that and see what I get. People going, what? <laughs> are you swearing at me? <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> when the kids and I went to Bisbee, Arizona, it's, you know, it's a very artisan community. And you go into these shops that are literally galleries. And there's just very intricate art pieces that come out of some enchanting fantasy, you know, just different materials that you would never think of putting together. And they're legitimately something that you would call art. And I think that that's really important to distinguish between something that's mass produced that is really pretty or elegant. And there's certainly room for that. But like you said, you know, if you're thinking about the impact on the planet, you're going to think twice about it. But purchasing true art, you know, there's just no comparison between the two. Yeah, you know, I agree. I, one of my favorite things to do is um, open studios. Anywhere you see open studios, I know Angel Skate down here, they do it twice a year now. You just walk in and you can, sometimes people will be selling stuff, but sometimes just go in and see their workspace, which is kind of cool. Um, but I know you like the Ojai area and that's one of my favorite things to do in October is to go to the open studios. Yeah. Yeah, it's even even extra special to be able to not only go in and buy it from the artist, but also to see their process and everything is really special. Oh, it is. And then you get to talk to them and really get so much more insight about the pieces that they have, their process, and just some great anecdotes that just continue to elevate the draw to that particular Mm. piece. It's amazing. I'm actually going to Ojai in a couple of days. So I I, I look forward to being able to do Mm -hmm. that again. They have some great artists up there. Yeah, for sure. Well, if people want to get a hold of you and purchase your jewelry, see more of what it's about, where would they go? If you're online, I have an Etsy shop. My business is Three Pine Hill. All three words, no numbers. <laughs> so if you go to Etsy and you look for my shop, Three Pine Hill, you can see my stuff there. But you know, I find that my best stuff sells before I get a chance to post it. So that will give you an idea of the kinds of things that I do and kind of get an idea of my style. I do have my own website, but basically it just links you to my Etsy shop. So I'm also on Instagram at Three Pine Hill, at Three Pine Hill on Twitter, at Three Pine Hill on Facebook. So those are all great ways. Um, You can look for that all one word, Three Pine Hill. Perfect. And the thing is that you said that you're best pieces sell out right away, which I agree with. But if you go back through the threads on Insta, as well as Facebook and Twitter, you're going to see those pieces that sold out. Yeah, absolutely. But probably the best way, usually I sell at shows. I have an email address, threepinehill at gmail.com. And I have a newsletter that goes out. Generally, what I do is I generate a show schedule every quarter of the year. This is where I'm going to be. These are the shows I'm at. And I send it out to everybody. And they I usually include a coupon, you bring the email with you, you get 10% off. And I also anytime I have sales. So if you're on my mailing list, you can absolutely find out anywhere I am. And whatever I've got going on is probably the most expansive with to find out what's going on. That was such a fun talk. Laura merges her artistic spirit and logical perspective to create beautiful craft and conversation as well as give back to her community. There's always something exciting and new to learn from her. I hope that this talk inspires you to embrace your perfect thinking style, read some new books, and maybe even commission a piece of art to enrich your life. Or 
like Laura, take that class that will take your hobby to the next level. All of Laura's work can be found online at Etsy, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at three, spelled out, Pine Hill. That's three Pine Hill. As always, I'll post links in the show notes. Don't forget to come back next week to hear part two of this talk where we get techy and environmental. Please continue to send me your questions and suggestions. I love hearing from you. And don't forget to take a moment to rate this episode. It only takes seconds, but your rating moves this podcast closer to the top of searches so that my friends and I can reach more people. I'm looking forward to sharing more in the company of friends talks with you. Be sure to follow me on the socials and the dot com all at the Queen Trail podcast. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-I-N-T-R-E-L-L-E podcast. I am Sil Annan, the Queen Trail. And until next time, I wish you passion, grace, adventure, creativity, discovery, elegance, and beauty.